0: Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast was funded by listeners like you through Patreon. If you like our podcast and want to help us spread the science of learning, you can support our work at www.patreon.com slash learningscientists. If you donate at least $5 per month, you will gain access to our monthly office hours videos. Before jumping into the episode this week, we have a special announcement about some free resources that are available for teachers and for students. We have talked about I Do Recall on our podcast and our blog before. David Hendal is the CEO and co-founder of I Do Recall, and he's also been one of our longtime Patreon supporters. Many of you may also know about OpenStax. It's a not-for-profit making education more affordable and accessible for students. They publish textbooks under a Creative Commons license so that students and teachers can use them in the classroom and elsewhere. Recently, I do recall became an OpenStax EdTech Ally Partner with this partnership, they hired subject matter expert educators to create comprehensive sets of linked flashcards for most of the OpenStax textbooks. This means that these flashcard sets are 100% free for you and your students to use. In addition, iDoRecall is also offering educators free I Do Recall educators licenses so that you can monitor your students' engagement and metrics with the OpenStax flashcards. If you're interested in this free license, check out the form in the show notes. Now, on to this week's episode.
1: Hello and welcome to the Learning Scientist podcast. My name is Dr. Carolina Kupertetzel and I'm a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Glasgow. Today we are going to talk about a topic that I have been recently introduced to and that can have an overarching impact in the classroom intersectionality. I invited two experts today to join me for this episode. This is Dr. Zeba Ghazali Muhammad and Dr. Aaron Verma. I'm honored that they are here today to share their knowledge and expertise of interne- intersectionality in education. Welcome, Zeba and Aaron. Can you introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your background and your interest in this topic?
2: Sure. Hi. So I'm Zeba and I'm a lecturer in psychology also at the University of Glasgow. I'm a developmental psychologist and my research started off around cognitive development in science education. So I was really interested in how children learn science, but also around the barriers to education and progression into STEM careers. So things like science, technology, engineering, mathematics. And I was particularly interested in this for women and girls and also interested in social mobility in general. So it was actually my interest in social mobility that got me really interested um, in my more recent research, which is around the barriers to students in higher education. So, you know, we often do a great job of getting students from deprived areas and diverse social backgrounds into university, but we don't always do very well supporting them once they're here. And that's perhaps even more important. So things like the hidden curriculum or promoting inclusion, helping them to develop a sense of belonging Um, and, you know, securing work after university as well. So, it's doing this more recent work that I came across research around intersectionality, and I think it speaks to a lot of these ideas. But I am by no means an expert. That's definitely Aaron, and I've learned an awful lot from him.
3: Um, my name is Dr. Darren Burma, and I currently am the head of the Race Quality Charter at Advanced HE, I'm also an academic tutor at the University of Dundee, where I do supervision at the Centre for Medical Education there. Uh, and I'm also a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts as well, so I've been involved with some of the activities for some time, which has been quite interesting too. And um, my my journey to intersectionality has been quite um, in well, I think it's been interesting, but then that's just me me maybe <laughs> <laughs> in some ways. Um, I've always been interested in social justice. I remember one when I was about fifteen, I was involved in a human rights campaign, and I was really interested in the ways in which we remove barriers to enable and uh, provide the right resources for communities to access and thrive. So that, that's been something that's always been like an intrinsic part of my interest. And I knew that social justice was, was something that needed to happen. I hadn't really came across intersectionality until I got to my doctorate, where I explored the ways in which intersecting identities shape healthcare students' retention stu- uh, kind of success. I was looking at very much uh, intersectionality through a gender lens, and at the time, I was I was reading a lot about the literature of intersectionality, really kind of getting to the, the depths of the theory of it and the academic side of it as well. That actually, there was a, the, the main focus of intersectionality was a lot about racialized women of color, but also race was a particular central tenet of it. And I was like, oh, this is really really interesting. And then they also kind of said, well, what are the other things that that intersect with race? So my research was really trying to explore the ways in which our identities shape one another, but I looked at intersectionality through the ways in which personal and professional identities shape one another in some ways. But then I had such a um, a personal experience with it as well, because it helped me make sense of my own identities, and the ways sometimes they're in a bit of conflict as well. And so since then, when when I was a lecturer for a short while um, at Dundee University, I was preaching about intersectionality, but I hadn't really put it into practice, or hadn't really tried to kind of bring it into action. Um, so I worked, uh, I left academia, worked in, in kind of government, the third sector, and also kind of now on the periphery of the higher education sector, looking at ways in which you put this academic concept, which is you know comes from academia, academia and academic thought, into action, into programs that can change into kind of whole institution approaches like systems, change just trying to kind of work out where does intersectionality change things and then how do we do that? What do we do with this this kind of prism? So my interest is that, you know, we talk about equality, but I just generally don't think we can do inclusion work if we're not being intersectional or led by it in some ways. Um, and I'm, I think that's been my interest is trying to bring that demystification of it to different groups and and the sector and different audiences and just try and get people to think that's not such a scary thing. We can all engage in it in some way or form. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so part of my role is to really kind of provide people with confidence that they can use intersectionality to affect change in a meaningful way.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining this podcast episode. The concept of intersectionality is one that maybe not everyone may have heard of before. And certainly for me, it was one that I only very recently learned more about when Aaron came to the Race and Equality Network at the University of Glasgow to give a talk. And more recently even, when I completed the Let's Talk About Race in the Workplace training at the University of Glasgow. So my question is, what does intersectionality mean? And could you explain this concept, maybe using some examples?
3: Um, So I'll give the the, the slightly academic background, but I'll keep it as less academic as possible. Um, So essentially, um, intersectionality as a concept um, was pioneered by black feminist scholars like that of Kimberley Crenshaw and Angela Davis, as two big anti-racist activists. Um, It also represents a wave of feminism, which is called intersectional feminism, and it's, it's essentially kind of arguing that equalities do not exist in silos, that our identities, that are, are multi, uh, multiple identities that intersect and shape our experience of structures, organisations, our worlds and realities. I think the core thing about intersectionality is always centred the voice of race and racialised women of colour at the heart of any change or action to take place. So predominantly what we see in terms of like its original sort of texts and articles that came out in sort of like the late 80s and 90s is it was used as a lens to help understand the ways in which black women experience systems that are meant to liberate them in some way. And in particular, Kimberly Crenshaw wrote a paper on the experience of black women seeking liberation in a domestic abuse system. So even though that they were getting help, uh, even though they were, they were going through a process of um, coming out of domestic abuse, they were still not protected from racism when, when looking in contrast to the white counterparts. So intersectionality stems from that voice and from those experiences, but it's kind of expanded a little bit um, over over time as well. One of the, the, the core things is that what we recognise is that we're all made up of multiple characteristics, that we're not all one, you know, we're not just one thing. And we don't experience one inequality at a time. So intersectionality has helped us understand and embrace that complexity um, and the ways in which things kind of push and pull in our, in our identities and structures and experiences and things like that. I think in terms of uh, an example, if we're looking at universities, for example, so we see a lot at the moment around um, anti-racism in universities as one as one example. So if we if we think about that a little bit more broadly and we look at the history of universities, universities have traditionally not been designed for or with um, black people, the black community or, or racialized community of people of color. They've not necessarily been designed with or for women, for example. So if we're trying to create a system that those communities or marginalized communities can experience and thrive, we need to use intersectionality as a way of centering their experience to leverage change to create a wider kind of inclusion moment as well. So we're looking at ways in which intersectionality can help deconstruct current organisations which have not inherently been designed for minoritised communities. Uh, and so looking at the complexity of that helps us kind of do those changes and, and think about those actions in a more in a nuanced way. And I guess just on, on, on another note as well, is when we're talking about intersectionality, we're not looking at creating another hierarchy of, of inequalities. We're talking about centering the voice of people that have always been silenced, historically marginalised, as a way, as a lever for change for a wider equalities or justice movement to happen.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I I don't have so much of an academic interpretation of intersectionality. It's, I guess, a more personal journey that I've come across it. So for me, intersectionality is about the systems of inequality, as Aaron said, so You know, we all have these unique experiences of discrimination, maybe even oppression. uh, And we also have some degree of privilege, some more than others, for sure. So intersectionality for me is about recognising these factors. Um, So an example I think about is in higher education and probably many sectors, actually, there's lots of events and seminars often about promoting women in the workplace. This is like a recognized phenomenon, right? That women in nearly every sector don't make it to those top jobs and those senior roles. So often these events are aimed at helping women to do that and about how women can position themselves, make the most opportunities that come their way, deal with misogyny, etc. cetera. Um, so I happened to be at one of these events a while back um, at my old institution and you know there were plenty of great tips and tricks that they were kind of talking about. I distinctly remember looking around the room and realizing I was the only woman of color there. So a lot of the advice that I was being given just didn't seem straightforward because I had and and still have the additional challenge of potential racism against me. So I think it's kind of recognizing those differences. So, you know, all women may experience misogyny in the workplace, for example, but that experience of misogyny for a black woman will be very different to her white counterpart so it's not so much about minimizing anybody else's experience misogyny is misogyny at the end of the day but it's recognizing that those differences exist and recognizing those differences in how we move forward that i think capture what intersectionality is about for me
1: thank you so much yeah these are really interesting um, examples that really capture the complexity really of mm. intersectionality and i think that is on the one hand a challenge but on the other hand, as we probably will um talk about later a bit more, also um an invitation to, to learn more about it and to solve those um those challenges with um mm. with, with great new um ideas. Before talking about intersectionality and in education specifically, I would like to better understand the personal and professional lived experiences for people who don't get recognized for their intersectional identities? And how does research contribute to understanding this better?
2: Uh, that's a good question. Um, so again, I think for me personally, it's this feeling of being on the sidelines. So it's like the example I gave before, you know, I identify as a woman and I certainly benefit from a lot of this training that uh, women receive specifically to re- uh, help them get promoted at work and things like that. But that training doesn't always recognize those additional barriers that I face as a woman of color. So there's only so much I can do with that information to actually benefit me. And I think we see this to a degree every day. I mean, thinking about my own role as an educator, I often talk to students, help them to apply for jobs. And there are some students that make it very successfully as a clinical psychologist, for example. That's often a very popular route in our field. But the hurdles that I found some of the students of color that have had to go through in comparison to their white counterparts to achieve exactly the same thing is striking. And I think as people begin to start to understand intersectionality, they can start to address some of those inequalities better. Um, and this is where I think the research is helping. It's starting to identify these issues and the unique challenges um, and what we can do to try and help remediate these to kind of make a, a better and more inclusive community for ourselves. Yeah, and
3: just just building on that, Zip, I think it's it's really, you, you highlight some really important points there as well. I I think it's really interesting that one of the things that Kimberly Crenshaw talks about is that if we're not intersectional, people fall through the cracks, and we see that a lot. Mm. There's so much evidence for, it's not necessarily, I think, the, the recognition of intersectional identities, but actually the recognition of the impact not being intersectional has. Mm. You know, we would look at the proportion of um, black female professors, for example, across the UK, I think on record from their publications, I think it's somewhere in the 30s, but I know it's gone up. There's been a few promotions announced on, social media this year as well, for example, we know the awarding gap so is a huge issue still. It was, even though that there's a high intake of international students more now than ever, and also with online provision, for example, we did see during the pandemic there was a narrowing of some of the awarding gaps, but in terms of the mechanisms of what that was, it's not very clear. So I, I think we have to look at uh, an outcomes perspective in terms of the recognition of mm-hmm. identities. Because then um, we're trying to paint a, we're, we're looking at this in a different lens. I think we can get caught up, I think, a little bit in focusing so much on addressing the needs of everyone with multitudes of identities that we sometimes lose sight of. Okay, what are the the outcomes and what the impact is going to have on their their educational outcomes, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think recognizing the ways in which students and staff are made up of multiple characteristics and identities. Is one step, that acknowledgement is one step, but then you have to kind of do something about it. Um, mm. You then have to start thinking about equity. So what are the resources you can provide that enable those communities to thrive? And then if you want to try and start the justice conversation, which is probably a little bit too further ahead, you then start talking about removing the barriers altogether, right? And, and, and I think that's, that intersectionality perspective gives a, a, a different view on it. I think in terms of the way in which research contributes to understanding this better, so I think during my doctorate, I um, learned a very whitewashed version of intersectionality. And it wasn't until I delved into the the, the literature and reading um, of like Quindra and Andrew Davis that I was like, oh, this isn't really a, this isn't a theory that's come from the voices of white women. This has come from a very different place altogether. Um, so I think the, in terms of the research process, we know, for example, research cultures, uh, the pipeline, they, they, they create adversities for racialized communities and racialised women of colour, but we know that for, for sure in terms of who gets bids, who gets grants, the number mm-hmm. of PhD students, the attrition rates and stuff like that, for example. But I think research in itself can do more to uh, engage um, communities, all parts of communities, not describing them as hard to reach, but describing them as just part mm-hmm. of the community to 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 be involved. We can look at mechanisms of like participatory research, for example, as 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 a way of empowering people. So kind of shifting away from subjects to kind of participants and in that space as well. And and I think also from a from a staff perspective is is actually just acknowledging the contribution of a lot of um racialised people who are involved with research. Mm. Um, and they, they they and acknowledging those contributions does shape outcomes as well so always coming back to that place of if we don't acknowledge the the contributions of of students in their research it can shape their educational outcomes and same for staff it can shape their promotions processes as zabe's going to mention a little bit about before as well so i think i guess the question is what what happens if we don't do it you know and i think that's Mm -hmm. always quite um that's something i kind of flip around in some ways
1: that's really interesting so what i'm hearing here are those Two steps, really. Uh, the first step is about acknowledgement and acknowledging challenges and issues that are present, but then turning those in the second step into opportunities um, into, uh, th- to make things better, really, in a way. Um, are there any exciting intersectionality projects maybe that you can highlight to our listeners? Uh, what are the aims of these projects and what's their outcome?
3: So the the, the one that's probably most recent is the the book that I've edited, which is titled Anti-Racism in Higher Education, An Action Guide for Change. That um, stemmed from, as an ode to intersectionality in its entirety. When we first kind of started putting the call out for evidence and, and, and contributions to that book, I didn't want it to be overly led by academics because it brings a certain voice and it can only speak to a certain audience. And recognising that, you know, to be intersectional, you need to listen to all the voices, you need to understand everyone's stories and try and put it into something that can facilitate or nurture change. So the book itself is probably less traditional in itself, uh, in some ways, that it contributes, has contributions from um, academics, professional support services staff, those from HR, people in culture, students, activists even, that are involved with this work to really kind of ask them to share their stories, which they have done to some degree, but also to kind of recognise that the university has changed over the course of 100 years, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, where they've shifted from kind of being led by religion or academics in some ways, it's become much more of an enterprise system. There's a much more of a commercialization element to universities. Mm-hmm. Some universities have consultancy arms. Some institutions are describing their heads of as presidents now. So we've got this weird kind of like um, change happening in institutions. So one of the, the things I wanted to highlight with this book is that to be intersectional is not actually that difficult. All you have to do is just ask for and invite people in a meaningful way, be honest with them about what you're trying to achieve with it, uh, and then bring them on the journey. And I think one of the things about this particular book, the aims of the project was not to rewrite the, the decades and hundreds of years of really good literature that's been written by scholars and activists over, the, over time. So we're not looking to rewrite the, the amazing work of like Heidi Merzner, for example, um, and Jason is as one example, right? So we wanted to be able to use that, give it, a, give it a kind of emphasis and translate it into opportunities that institutions can use it for change. So, the, the reason why I kind of brought this up as an intersectionality project in some way is that we've not, what we try to do is bridge the gap between theory, practice, and action uh, and to connect it all together without losing sight of all the good stuff that's happened, being respective of the history and the legacies of where this evidence comes from, but also kind of saying to institutions, this is. This is all here now. you've got no excuses in some ways um this is this is kind of uh this is your starting point to look at something and go, actually, I can use this for my for our university strategy um and and wanted to try and produce something that would help break the cycle help enable people that they don't have to defend why racism is a problem. they don't have to explain what racism is, but essentially they can go just read this. Or read something else. You know, it's just another contribution to that 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 diverse or anti-racist reading list that can help break the cycles and and try and reduce some of the burden that some of our uh, some some of our racialized communities that that live with multiple disadvantages or vulnerabilities don't have to keep keep kind of engaging in that as well. I guess in just in, in terms of outcome, it's only just released <laughs> a few weeks ago.
1: Congratulations! But,
3: <laughs> but there is an ambition that it will. I mean, if, if anecdotally, I know uh, there's been some people that are using it as part of the university strategies now, which is really great. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really meaningful. I think Google citations, that's always nice to have, but actually I want to see people using it in their planning and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, but that, that's probably it to, to be determined in some ways. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I, I have to agree. Aaron, your um, your book is an incredible resource. So thank you so much for putting it together. Um, I mean, I think kind of what you said there really hit a uh, hit. The nail on the head for me so actually saying you know there's no excuse we've got enough information and enough kind of um, time to do this work how can we actually implement what's going on so it's not just about acknowledgement but actually doing something to try and resolve this so again for me personally some of the projects I've been working on um, within higher education have really focused on how students are viewing our current curricula so one of the things we quite often get called up for is this huge lack of diversity in our teaching content and You know, there's lots of reasons for this. It's partly down to individual educators, but I think a lot of it is also very systemic, as you mentioned. We've got this colonial past to a a lot of our research. Um, There's also things that we have to include because at the moment it's necessary for accreditation. So even if you don't necessarily agree with it, we still have to kind of include various aspects, Um, the history of psychology being one. And there are also other practices, I think, again, that are kind of more inbuilt uh, in the field of academia. So things like the type of content that publishers will accept, you know, the classic one being research from Western countries often being very rejected, not included at all in in kind of the sphere of what we are including as valid research. And yet we're taking Western research as almost this international perspective, which just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, So for me, you know, the couple of the projects that I'm involved in at the moment have investigated what our students currently think about our curricula. We've made a lot of changes at the moment within our own school to try and diversify things a bit more. Um, And we're interested in what students are making of that, essentially. So... Strictly speaking, um, this work isn't about intersectionality per se, but as Aaron said, it's the kind of work that lays that foundation for future projects and hopefully will lay the foundation for changing things up. Um, So watch the space.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. And it already takes us right to the core of um, our topic, intersectionality in education specifically So um, you already talked about some of the challenges, but let's dive in a bit more. What are specific challenges that intersectionality creates in the classroom? And why should
2: teachers and
1: students be aware of these?
2: That's a good question. Um, So coming back to the curricular example I gave, if you're a student of color at university, you might not feel very represented in the research that's being presented to you. And so you're not going to see its value. And more worryingly, you might fail to feel any sense of inclusion and belonging. And that, I think, is particularly sad because we already know how much these things contribute towards academic achievement, long-term success, um, and just general well-being. So we're basically excluding a huge proportion of students just by the way that we teach. And I think that's why it's so important. If you're an educator and you don't know about these things and these issues, you can see how easy it might be to continue to perpetuate those inequalities but by starting to become a bit more aware of intersectionality, and I think that is slowly starting to happen, people are becoming more aware of this term, you can start to think about how you can be more inclusive in your teaching. And that inevitably is going to increase engagement, which I know a lot of educators are also very concerned about. So in terms of what we can do, I mean, this can be often as something something as simple as just using more diverse research. So actually just recognizing our colonial past but also trying to show different examples of the current research and even past research that's existed that maybe was just a bit hidden um, there are other things like a colleague of mine for example um, when teaching the history of psychology module which is very whitewashed let's face it allow students to write an essay about how psychology research largely ignored diversity And so this gets students to reflect on why representation matters and they can talk about an issue that's important to them. So this doesn't have to be just about race. It can be about neurodiversity, LGBT plus issues, women in psychology, etc. And so by doing that, we're trying to kind of find ways of benefiting everyone, not just students of colour, although, of course, that's very important, but we're trying to create this more inclusive society. And I think there's just, there are so many opportunities to get creative without having to rock the boat too much, if that's what people are often worried about. I mean, Aaron mentioned earlier, you can kind of tap into um, his book without actually having to talk about what racism is. It's just about fixing the problem. We don't need to fixate too much on necessarily what the problem is. Let's just try and get rid of it and move on.
3: Yeah, just building on that, I think coming back to the curriculum is probably a good example um, in some ways. And there's obviously a lot of work happening. A lot of institutions are engaging in kind of like decolonizing the curriculum and different ways of kind of creating like an inclusive curriculum. But, that, but in terms of thinking about the intersectionality in, in the classroom, I think we have to think about it in three areas. And this is kind of coming back to a little bit of the, of its, of the theory of, of intersectionality. So we need to look at the political forces around curricula and education, higher education at the moment, that are not necessarily conducive to inclusion or kind of uh, anti-racism or intersectionality at the moment. So I think that's quite a difficult thing to navigate. There's a lot of mm. resistance. So if we're going to try and create an intersectional educational space, um, how are we, you know, working with those that are maybe afraid or intimidated by this term and what it might mean for them uh, and also how we try to bring people, trying to shift from hearts and minds in this particular space as well. Then also we kind of look into representation. So we know, for example, senior level representation is, even, you know, is, is low when we come to looking at diversity and inclusion and, and different protected characteristics. And when you're looking at aggregated forms of characteristics, it's also even, even less so in some ways as well. Um, So we need to think about what what role models or what kind of career trajectories are we showing students and staff as well that they can achieve these things or that they've got support to achieve things Mm -hmm. that they would like to achieve as well. Um, And then also kind of thinking really about having sort of a curriculum that speaks to intersectionality. It's not about creating a curriculum that is for every, a different curriculum for every individual that experiences Mm -hmm. things in a different way. That would be impossible, and we will never get <laughs> in higher education become even more bureaucratic if we had that as a case as well. But it's really thinking about who was the curriculum designed with and for. Um, does the curriculum itself in the classroom speak to some of the wider forces, some of the wider inequalities? It might not address all of them, but does it kind of is it cognizant of them? And does it speak to some of the wider policy changes and the policy forces that are happening at the moment as well? We know that students are much more Uh, are are kind of considered students as more global citizens now in some ways their their access to knowledge is much more global and we know that experience is shaped by global events as well we know social movements have an impact on the way students experience in the classroom so how is our curriculum not necessarily responding to those movements but how is it accommodating spaces for those students to be able to be themselves to be able to use that um, pain or their kind of experience in their different types of work and I think so you mentioned about kind of bringing themselves into some of their assignments or mm. some of their work and the presentations and things enabling some of that flexibility and I think finding some of the the kind of bits where you can bend you know mm. there's, there's some there's some accreditation mm. bits where we just can't change at the moment and maybe it will change in the future but finding those areas where you can actually invite people to still have those pockets of that belonging that, that where they can bring their own experience because particularly international students, they bring a whole rich knowledge from the greater majority of them. So I think that finding ways to, to bring that into the classroom is, is really empowering as well.
1: I really like what you said about creating intersectional educational spaces because it what it actually means is um, if someone would try to solve all problems at once, right? Or the big problem, uh, big challenges that seem kind of, impossible to overcome then they might shy away and not even try but creating those intersectional educational spaces means breaking down different challenges and maybe tackling one at a time and in different ways and in this way if many people do this at the same time then you know we build up a system where everyone is kind of problem solving coming up with innovative ideas to create those intersectional educational spaces. I I really like that. It's um, it's nice. nice. (laughs) Um, Challenges really always call for solutions. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that um, and ways really to tackle and address them. Personally, again, from listening to you, I see more opportunities to improve education as a whole by taking intersectionality into consideration. How can teachers or lecturers embrace intersectionality in their teaching?
3: yeah thanks for for asking that. it's, a, it's a really it 's a really helpful question actually, and I think it's a really useful question so I, I I would like to take this from the perspective of sort of a kind of a open cultural kind of perspective I, I would like to see lecturers just being open to engaging with the concept across the board um, i'd like to see kind of educators irrespective of, of teaching research scholarship roles. <laughs> That they're just kind of engaging in it. They don't see it as sort of something that's outside of their discipline, um, which happens quite a lot, right? So I think one of the things, one of the, the things that I think of some faculties or some subjects, disciplines think is that this concept is sociological in its entirety um, and it doesn't lend itself to an accounting degree or it doesn't lend <laughs> itself to, to a summer in STEM or, or whatever, right? So I think it would be great to kind of find ways in which we can translate intersectionality to show the benefits of it to certain subject disciplines. Because actually in accounting, for example, even if you are working with numbers, who are the people around you working on these numbers, right? Who are the who are the teams you're going to work with in the future? What is your career trajectory going to be? Who are your role models? So it kind of opens up a little bit more than just what's in the, the expertise or the, the technical side of things. Um, and I think the other part is really kind of helping lecturers and, and those are different levels of, of lecturing as well to kind of just not be to, to engage with the literature and the discourse of intersectionality. Um, and, and one of the parts of that that I think is quite difficult is, is there's a lot of literacy that needs to be built in this particular space. There, I mean, Zabra, we've spoken extensively about intersectionality, but it's easy in some ways because we have a good understanding of it mm. but for, for lecturer X or Y. It, it, it's something they've never come into contact with. So I think there's maybe less about trying to get them to embrace it, but just to kind of get them to a place where they can feel comfortable to say it mm-hmm. and then get them to a place where they can feel comfortable to use it in the classroom. Um and I think some of those kind of how to's or those guides which provide some frameworks for, for lectures are a good starting point. Um but I think we're quite a long way away I think in terms of getting them getting this idea embraced into kind of teaching and learning spaces?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think just as you said, Aaron, you know, recognition is always the first step. Um, I've no doubt that many lecturers, many educators have heard of the term intersectionality. It's kind of being thrown around as a buzzword right now. Um, But I think very few actually understand what it means well enough to actually articulate it. And I don't blame them. It's a lot. It's a a big term. It packs a a lot of different things in it. But, you know, there's some great training. I mean, Carolina, you mentioned some of the training offered at Glasgow around these issues, Mm. which has been fantastic. Um, And I think, you know, what's more is that this training is mandatory. So it's small steps like this that are ensuring everyone is receiving the message loud and clear. And I think beyond, yeah.
1: I just want to interrupt you there for a second and say that's one of the mandatory trainings That's actually really good. (laughs) (laughs) Really good. It's a fantastic training. I, uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed taking it, and it was super eye-opening and um, thought-provoking.
2: Yeah. Very. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. It's very much so. Um, and I think it's just, you know, a small step that, that shows our institution, um, trying to take in, in kind of alleviating some of these problems. But I think the very fact that it is mandatory and it makes it kind of, it, it shows the importance that we need to place on it, doesn't it? I think that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think by ensuring that everyone is receiving that message, I mean, beyond this, we've got some brilliant educators, I think once they understand some of these issues, they've got the pedagogical know-how, I'd like to think most of us do at least, to really try and implement steps um, to be more inclusive in teaching. And it doesn't have to be these huge big things. You know, I gave some examples earlier about diversifying reference lists, you can start small and, and build it up. Um, and you can be more creative with things like assessments. As Aaron said, there are things that we can't change at the moment. Hopefully they will change in the future for the benefit of us all, but at the moment there are things that we have to adhere to, and okay, we can work with that. So let's try and be a bit more creative with our pedagogy and and how can we kind of invite people to engage with some of these ideas more meaningfully. Um, But I think another important step, and this is something I actually picked up on from Aaron's talk that he very kindly delivered to us um, at Glasgow, a big poor, an important step is to really evaluate these steps. So actually making sure that what we're doing is having a positive impact. It is moving in the right direction. Um, and it's not just this sort of tick box exercise that unfortunately a lot of institutions will also try and engage in via that route. And and that's not what we want to be doing. So I think evaluating those steps and actually inviting in a lot of the communities that this is having an impact on, um, talking to them and asking, is this what you want? Is this having a change? Is this positive? And actually, you know, constantly revisiting those ideas, I think is one way forward.
1: We have focused a lot about, um, we have focused a lot on the teacher, on the educator or Mm -hmm. the institution. I would like to shift the focus um, to students because not everything must come from the teacher or the institution. Um, Students are agents in the classroom and um, they can also contribute to raising awareness for intersectionality, for example. How could peer-to-peer learning and interactions look like that support intersectionality?
2: I mean, I think it's great that you recognize that because I would absolutely have to agree with you. Um, So I started up the Race and Equality Network at the School of Psychology back in February now. Um, And it's a network that's for staff and students. But um, as Aaron pointed out, there's very few staff at the moment, um, at least people of color within our institution. So one of the things I was really keen on doing was ensuring that I wasn't speaking for my students, but that they could have a voice and tell me what they wanted from the network, the issues that were most important to them, who it was serving. I didn't want to dictate to them what I thought was what route we should take and what was best based off my own unique experiences and, and privileges, and which are very likely to be different to what they might feel. So we had these discussions really early on and, and we still do to a degree um, about what our network is actually for, who are we standing for. And what really struck me was they just wanted people to listen. They just wanted people to be more aware of things like a lack of representation, a lack of diversity, and actually how it's affecting them day to day. They want to be able to share their experiences with their peers. Um, And I don't think necessarily it's about complaining. I think it's actually just about giving their peers an opportunity to understand what it's like to be them. Because, and I think actually there's this brilliant phrase that I heard a while back, um, equality feels like oppression if you've been privileged your entire life and that's what it comes down to you know helping others recognize their own privileges in society so one thing we're trying to do as a network is just to be really open and we open our network to allies it's not just for people of color but it's for anyone that's interested in these issues and and wants to kind of be part of the conversation so one simple step is just to hear from our students about the issues of race inequality because if you've never experienced those barriers you might not even recognize that they exist um and as aaron said again you know it's really easy to try and be intersectional just just ask people in a meaningful way and that's what we're trying to do so um one thing we're currently exploring is the concept of a listening room or a human library where you have these opportunities to actually share stories and these have been used quite successfully in other institutions and in other sectors now to basically to try and do that, so we'd like to explore these ideas and hopefully make use of them at Glasgow. And again, just to try and encourage a bit more aware, awareness of these issues um, and about intersectionality more broadly.
3: Yeah, th- thanks, this You covered such important points there as well, and I think that that quote around the equality feels like oppression if you've been privileged your whole life is really. It's really important. Um, I've got another quote just to add on to this as well, that's okay, which
2: is. Quota.
3: Um, <laughs> no, not at all building, we're building things together. Um, so, uh, it's, and I think just thinking about that question of, of the kind of peer to peer side of things, for example, Leela um, Watson talks about, um, and you kind of mentioned this quote, he's an Australian activist and scholar activist. He said, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time but if you've come here because your liberation is bound up with mine then let us work together mm. and I think one of the um really interesting things about um having students as as kind of actual agents and not passive recipients of knowledge uh, in the classroom um initiatives and things like students as partners is one example which i have seen really interesting stuff mm. happening obviously you need to get the balance right because you know, students are there to to learn to to achieve something they they're coming to get knowledge and create knowledge in some ways. But I think that there's something about ways in which we work with students in the educational space that enables them to share their story. A lot of, uh, one of the things I always come back to is that some students, particularly racially minority students and black students, for example, we know there's um, disproportionate numbers of school exclusions even before they get to university. Mm-hmm. How are we supporting those students, not just accessing university, but to actually engage in the classroom? That I do have, I'm not saying we should have a record of all students and their school exclusions anyway, but I'm just thinking for, for, to, to really think about the, the things or the baggage that, that students bring with them to universities mm-hmm. um, who may not have historically had positive experiences in the classroom. How are we acknowledging that? How are we creating a space where they can share that story, which shapes the the educational outcomes and and the learning as well? And I find student partners is a really interesting model as one example, because that's kind of about creating shared agreement and shared goals and thinking about the shared assessments. And I think that's been quite an interesting thing to to kind of see in some ways as well. I guess when it comes to looking at intersectionality and even from the, the, you know, thinking about students, One of the things it helps us realise is students are also intersectional. They are coming from a range Mm. of different um, products of different um, legacies and um, experience different forces and and policies and so on and so forth. Um, And also I think as a teacher, that means that you can have a more meaningful dialogue, I think, with students or with a student because you're better understanding their story and also you're better understanding how to support them, provide them with a resource or some resources to Give them more engagement, or provide that more engagement, or facilitate it in some ways as well. And um, and I think part of that then is is really kind of raising awareness of intersectionality, is just embedding it into to what you do, signposting to it where possible, but actually using the principles of of intersectionality, recognizing what it's about and what it's meant to achieve, centering voices, being cognizant of structures and policies and so on and, so on and representation. These are all things I think we can we can do, but we can just maybe articulate more clearly in, in the classroom as well.
1: Thank you so much for sharing so many practical tips already. Um, this brings me to my final question. And as my final question, I always ask about practical tips <laughs> um, for te- for teachers and students. So if you had one tip for teachers and one tip for students for a successful implementation of um, intersectionality in teaching and learning, being inclusive, what would they be?
3: Yeah, so- Oh, one tip. It's always a tricky one um, to come <laughs> up with one thing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, okay. So, f- so from my perspective, the, the one tip for teachers, I think, is go look up the intersectionality wheel, which is developed by um, these amazing Canadian researchers. It's a it's a really interesting tool um, that you can use to, to kind of put at the heart of your teaching practice or pedagogy or curricula, w- whichever you want to use but we use that as a guiding light, as a reference point, not to address everything in that wheel, because there's, there's a lot, as you know, Zabra mentioned, intersectionality is a big area, so we can't address everything, but it just kind of forces a teacher to think beyond the the kind of traditional learning outcomes and quality assurance measures that we always have to go through in some way, shape, or form. Thinks about the ways which curricula is contextualised, and and I think that's, that's really, really interesting as well. And and actually um within that, you know, just saying the word intersectionality in the classroom is okay, you know. <laughs> um to start using it as a word, um it's fine, like no one's no we're not expecting a whole kind of um lectureship of of, of kind of intersectionality experts anytime I've seen, but just saying the word is okay, you know. Um it, it just creates a bit more comfortability, I think, with it. and, and it, it opens up a conversation because some students will never have come across it. So when you introduce concepts, lecturers have the power to do that, to introduce new ideas. That, that's, I think it's just a, it's a really simple and effective way of just kind of bringing it to the classroom. And I think one tip for students is, is probably similar in some ways, um, probably less so engaging with the intersectionality wheel, but, but not being afraid to use their stories or their identities and experiences to shape what they put into the into the classroom Mm. um and i know there's kind of a two-way street i think in some ways but we should be able to create spaces where students can share a bit of themselves so so i think allowing students to be intersectional um in some way shape or form saying that they've got we've got a safe space here there's a compassionate space here to do that and and then that i think as well kind of a process of doing being really pragmatist about it as well can be quite powerful so so hopefully those are two tips that, that are useful
2: <laughs> I mean, I'd have to agree with your tip for students. There, I think giving them the opportunity to actually recognise their intersectional selves um, is a really good one. I think if I had to think of one tip, it would be read Aaron's books. Um, they're excellent resources. <laughs> in all honesty, though, uh, I mean, definitely do read the books. But in all honesty, I think I think it's just as simple as educate yourself about what intersectionality actually is, um, how these issues are affecting students, how they're affecting colleagues. And from this, just try and find ways of incorporating inclusivity into your teaching, uh, if you're an educator, at least. And I think the engagement will hopefully follow.
1: Okay, I'd like to thank again Seiba and Aaron for joining our podcast episode today and for sharing their knowledge and expertise and all the wonderful tips. I'm sure that our listeners appreciate your input and I certainly have learned new things today as well. So thank you so much for that.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. It's been really
3: great to be here today.
1: To all our listeners, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay safe and until next time, goodbye. This
0: episode is funded by listeners like you.
1: To support our work and gain access to exclusive content,
0: visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learningscientists.